just a quickie. My friend Bill C. here is going to be taking somebody to the airport. Is that all straight, Bill? Okay. There's a hearing briefly from our speaker this morning. And uh, I don't really need to introduce Father Bill any more than he's already been introduced to us. As you know, he's a member of the CIA, Catholic Irish Alcoholics. <laughs> Father Bill. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Bill, and I am a Catholic Irish alcoholic. And the very first thing I want to say, and I really don't know how to say it in such a way that it will express what's in my heart, I want to say the biggest thank you I've ever said for the very, very great honor and privilege I've enjoyed in being associated with you for these past few days. This really is a, a high, high point in my <clears throat> sober life. To find myself in such such company, <clears throat> I want to tell you that it has totally amazed me. It has totally amazed me how men and women of your caliber have become so obviously and so overwhelmingly obviously imbued with the whole AA spirit. Men of such immensely high professional competence. You know. <clears throat> A member of my own profession <clears throat> in the fairly recent past found it necessary to become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Actually, he was an archbishop. And after he was in the program for a little while, all the bishops of America met in their usual way. They met, meet a couple of times a year. And when they do, they spend one day having what they call a day of recollection, one day a kind of little mini-retreat. And this archbishop gave them the day of recollection. And he was full of AA. You know how we are. But at the end of this day of recollection, the word went out that the Roman Catholic bishops now of America believe that there is a power greater than themselves. <laughs> and I have felt the same amazement at finding that the medical profession acknowledges a power greater than themselves. <laughs> but I do say from my heart, you, you, you have edified me. You have edified me by your marvelous surrender to this program, your acquirement of its real, real spirit, and your humility. It's, it's fantastic. I guess it's as much, if perhaps not more, of a miracle when an Irishman <clears throat> has the honesty to acknowledge that he is an alcoholic. That calls for a... For, for, when you realize what an Irish person is like. An Irish person is a born liar. <laughs> they don't have to be, wait to become alcoholics to become liars. They're to the manner born. They are bullshitters of the first order. You never, <laughs> you never know where you are with them, and I'm just warning you about that. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking of the, this time next year, you'll all be in Texas, please God. And I was home in my own home country just last year, and there was a story going the rounds then about a Texan who was in his vac on vacation in Ireland. I hope uh, Dr. my friend Dr. John M. is listening carefully. Anyway, he, he, got, he got acquainted with an Irish farmer. And uh, he asked the Irish farmer to show him around his little farm. And when he saw all around the little farm, the Texans said, Gee, you know, uh, back in Texas on my ranch, if I got into my car at sunrise, to tour my farm, tour my ranch, by the time the sun would have set, I wouldn't have got halfway around. So the Irish farmer said, gee, he said, 
I had a car like that once, too. <laughs> I want to warn you. That's what we're like. Anyway, I was born into that culture many years ago in a little Irish village, by the way, in the south of Ireland. Not in that madhouse up north there, thank God, no. I was born in the south of Ireland, a little Irish village, where everybody was a good holy Roman Catholic, where the church was the center of everything, and uh, I was sent to school in the usual way. I was taught, first of all, by the, the religious sisters, the nuns. Then I went to the grade school, and I was taught by what we call the brothers, the religious brothers. And then I went to what we called a college, classical school, we called it, and that was run by the diocesan priests. And so, as you can imagine, I had an awful lot of religion pumped into me right from when I was a child. I can never remember a moment in my young life when I decided to become a priest. For me, no such moment ever ever came. I don't know how it was, but no one ever suggested it to me in any way. But as far, far back as I can remember, I already wanted to be a priest. When I look back at my life from the perspective of my AA experience, as I see it now, I was nuts from the beginning. <laughs> That's how I see it now. You know, there are various kinds of nuts. You don't need me to tell you people that. There are various kinds. <laughs> and I would classify myself as a religious nut. I mean that. I was. And whether I still am, there are plenty of people here who are competent to judge. you figured it out. But I was, I know now, a peculiar child. I really was peculiar. I, uh, I was pathologically God-conscious. I know that now. God-conscious. More than, I, I was more aware of God than I was of the people I could see with my two eyes. When I was a little kid, the village church was open all day, every day. And uh, I wasn't playing ball with the rest of the kids when I was free to do that. I was down in the church. How you get to be like that, I never know. What in the heck I was doing there? I have all kinds of weird recollections of it. When I was really tiny, I'd go down there and I'd light all the candles in front of the, the statue. I'd get up in the pulpit and preach to an imaginary audience. Not normal, not normal. <laughs> but if you had asked me in my developing years... Why, why do you want to be a priest? Why exactly? I would have been very shy about trying to tell you, <clears throat> because it would have meant telling you about something inside me that uh, I was very self-conscious about. You see, I had heard, by the way, I don't need to tell you that what a, an abnormal person hears and what he's actually told is not always the same thing, so allow for that. I had heard that <clears throat> if you want to do the biggest, biggest thing with your life that a human being can do, what would you do? The biggest thing that you can do. The thing that spells success in the nth degree. What is it? I had heard what it is from the good book. What is the first and the greatest of all the values? To love God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole soul, thy whole strength. That impressed me. That's the biggest, biggest thing a human being can do, as I heard it and saw it then. Bigger than getting to the moon and back. Bigger than getting the cure for cancer. Bigger than making a billion. To love God perfectly. There is where it's all at. That's the way I saw things then. And so I said to my little self, okay, let's go for it. <clears throat> let's go for it. And 
I had heard, what do you have to do in order to do that precisely? What do you have to do in order to love God perfectly? Now, don't forget what I heard and what I was told mightn't have been the same thing. And I had the idea that if you wanted to love God perfectly, the very first thing you had to do is you had to make yourself as uncomfortable as you could possibly make yourself. As miserable as you could possibly make yourself. You had to deprive yourself. You had to cut out anything that's enjoyable. You had to deny yourself and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, if that's what it takes, let's get on with it. The austere life. The self-sacrificing life. The kind of Mother Teresa life. I got that idea from when I was a child. And then I had heard that if you really want to go for an honors course in this business of loving God, then as well as become totally self-sacrificing, leave home and possessions and go way out foreign to convert the heathen. And where could you, in all this planet, where could you get more heathen than England? <laughs> and so that's what I decided to do. At the ripe old age of 15, I packed my little bag. I said goodbye to my mother and father and my only brother, that's all there was of us, and my father brought me up to the capital city, Dublin, and put me on the ferry boat to go across the Irish Sea to Liverpool in England, and from there to a prep school run by monks in the north of England. And in that school, if you graduated, you were expected to enter the monastery and become a monk. And that is precisely what I did. I found myself living the life of a young monk in a monastery at the age of 18. And in the course of, after seven years, I was ordained a priest as well as being a monk. And I lived that life in, that, in, a, in a monastery with the added status of a, a priest for 30 years, it was a, an austere life. Those men uh, break their sleep every night. I, they did then. It's been modified a bit since the Second Vatican Council. We broke our sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning and tootled along to the Abbey Church to sing the praises of God. Now, why God wanted his praises sung at 2 o'clock in the morning... <laughs> I never got around to figuring out. It's, don't forget what I told it made sense to me then. We fasted three days a week, plus all the days of Lent and Advent. We worked in the fields. We studied a lot, prayed an awful lot. We took the vows that make a monk a monk and make a nun a nun. The vow of poverty which we undertake to own nothing personally, everything belong to the community. The vow of obedience, we undertook to regard, to regard the will of the superior as the will of Almighty God himself, never to do your own will. The vow of chastity, which committed us to uh, sacrificing all that goes along with sex and romance and marriage and all that area of life that can be so enriching and so happy. And the purpose of all this was to do, to bring about what the third chapter in our big book talks about. Smashing ego. Ego has to be smashed if you're ever to get into intimacy with God. To have a will that's no longer your own, but totally responsive to God in love. That was their way of bringing about what we hope to bring about in our program, the total destruction of ego. I want to tell you that those men that I lived with all those years were by no means nuts. They were, they were marvelous, marvelous people. But unknown to myself, as you're going to find out, 
I was not one of them. I was an alcoholic. When I was five years a priest, that meant in the year 1950, which was five years after the end of the Second World War in Europe, the authorities in the Catholic Church resumed a practice that had been traditional for very, 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 very many centuries. The practice of sending to Rome the more talented members of their communities. Uh, bishops would send some of their young priests to Rome, to the Roman universities. Abbots and superiors of monasteries would send some of their young men to study all kinds of highfalutin stuff right there under the Pope's nose. What was regarded as the source of the creme de la creme of Catholic culture and scholarship. And I was sent there in 1950. By that time I was five years a priest. <clears throat> and I found myself in the head monastery of the religious order I belonged to. A very, very big monastery in Rome. And I was living with uh, my fellow monks of the same order from all over the world, along with the resident Italian monks there. And we lived there, and we went to our various colleges and universities to school every day. The life in the monastery was the same as the life in the monastery at home in England. Twice a day, we went to what you would call the dining room of the monastery. This is now a, a community of over 200 monks. The dining room in a monastery is called a refectory. And you always sat in the same place in the refectory with the same monks either side of you according to your seniority, just like in the service. But all down the middle of these stark bare tables in the refectory were these enormous flagons of wine. Enormous things placed in the middle of the tables, all down the middle. One of them was placed between every two monks. Now, you weren't supposed to drink the whole thing. I mean, uh, they were put out there in the same way that you put out a big jug of water. So, But I didn't know that. Now, I want to tell you that apart from celebrating Mass as a priest in which you would consume that much wine in the, at, at the Mass, I had never, I had never in my life experienced intoxication. Never, never, never. But my hour had come. The guy who sat this side of me, with whom I was to share this enormous flagon of wine, would only use that much in the bottom of his little glass. The guy who sat this other side of me, who was to share that flagon of wine with the guy at the far side of him, he drank none at all. He was weird. <laughs> and the guy at the far side of him only drank that much there. So... Twice a day, twice a day, I found myself literally with ar within arm's reach of an enormous quantity of wine. And at each meal, twice a day, at each meal, both those flagons of wine were empty. And I was smashed. I always love to dwell on this part of my story. I only wish I, I could find the words to express to you what it was like for me to be gloriously, hilariously drunk. It was fantastic. It really was. I had never, ever imagined there was such an experience possible. It was wild. God, I remember my, the giggles and the... It was hilarious. By the way, the holy monks would sit at their meals in reverent, awesome silence. <laughs> which was shattered. 
and they were nudging me, shut, shut, shut up, shut up. I, I always had a terrible problem at the end of each meal because we had to stand up, give, go to the outside of the table and stand in a straight line with your hands up these big, long, wide sleeves and your head bent and say the prayers along with everybody. But then you had to walk out in a straight line. <laughs> Tacking against the wind. I never solved that problem. <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's the way it was when I began drinking, when I began experiencing alcohol in large quantities. And that experience in the refectory was for openers. Because I have to tell you that in the big community, there were English-speaking young monks from all over the world, like America, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and where off. And we formed a kind of a select little community within the community. I mean, these guys around us were all talking Italian and Spanish. They were uncivilized. So, we formed our own little community. We were far from home. We had money supplied to us by our superiors back home for supplying ourselves with books and deep research that we had to do, you know, and... Uh, so, we had the wherewithal to uh, lay in what was necessary to uh, keep ourselves cheerful. And uh, they made my room, by the way, you don't speak of your room in a monastery as a room, it's your cell. They made my cell, the uh, bar and place for ga these uh, surreptitious gatherings, which usually took place in the middle of the night. So, we had these parties. And uh, all the boodle, it was my responsibility to have it all laid in. I remember I had shelves in my room, meant to be for books, but I had rows and rows of bottles, discreetly covered by a, a blanket. We co-opted one Italian into our circle. His family owned a winery outside of Rome. <laughs> And I lived to see the day when we got a whole barrel of wine up the back stairs and into my cell and set it up on a trestle with a faucet and all that. I was all set up. <laughs> I had a, a honeymoon with uh, alcohol like you wouldn't believe. It was... I don't, I don't remember much of Rome. I really don't. I didn't go out very much. I, I was given to very deep study <laughs> in my cell. Uh, they tell me there are over 400 churches in Rome, and I was there three years. I saw less than four of them. I did see St. Peter's from a distance, I remember. It looked, I thought it was a carousel. It seemed to be... <laughs> I have only very vague recollections of the eternal city. Well, that was life for me for three years. And uh, at the end of that time, by some miracle that I'll never understand, I got whatever degrees they sent me out there to get. And I came home, and home meant now uh, my monastery in England. And I was appointed to teach, to be a professor of theology. And it was my job to uh, teach the young monks who would be the future priests of the order. But I discovered that I couldn't function without my bottle. I switched to whiskey when I came home. And I want to tell you that uh, for years I became a closet drinker. And I always had my supply. Now, you'll want to know, perhaps, how come a guy who lives in a monastery, whose comings and goings are all under the uh, vigilance of a superior, who can't do a thing without approval from a superior, who has no money, and so on, how a guy like that can constantly have his supply of liquor privately? And all I can tell you is, I learned to live a day at a time long before I met you guys. <laughs> 
Oh, it works. It really works. I didn't tell you that these monks that I belong to engaged in external work of a special kind that some of you might be familiar with. These monks went out from the monastery uh, to give what were called parish missions and retreats to other religious communities. That meant that, for instance, a pastor in a parish in a town or city would communicate with this monastery or other monasteries of the same kind and ask that one monk or two monks or three monks from that monastery come along to his parish, his church, and preach to the people for a week, two weeks, three weeks. And in the old days, the people would all turn out in droves. And the idea of the whole thing was that these monks were supposed to be holy men, wrapped up with God like Moses, wrapped up with God on the top of the mountain. And as Moses would come down and communicate God's mind to the people in the plains, the holy monks would go to the parishes and speak God's mind and God's heart to God's people in a special way. And in the same way, they would go to convents of nuns. Well, when I was sent out on those kind of tasks, the pastor, or the Reverend Mother, as the case might be, would become aware that the good Holy Father liked his... uh, He was attached to the Holy Spirit, don't you understand? (laughs) And he needed it to keep him going. And so, uh, he would always... Give me, give me something to put in my bag to bring back with me. And he might even give me... At this time, the business of loving God with my whole heart and my whole soul had sort of gone on a back burner. Uh, it was all on hold. I had progressed considerably in wanting what I wanted. And what I wanted, I wanted very, very much. And what God might have wanted had become very, very, very secondary. In fact, it disappeared off the horizon completely. I have to tell you that uh, I had become your original phony, total phony. I lived a life that was supposed to be a, a very saintly, godly life, spiritual life, and it was nothing of the kind. And I knew it. I had become unbelievably arrogant and proud, and obnoxious. I was a troubled man without knowing it, and I sure knew how to make trouble for others. I hear stories about myself when I I go back there occasionally, and they tell me some of the things about myself. There are different monasteries, and you could be moved from one monastery to another. And my reputation had gone forth, And whenever I was going to be transferred to another monastery, the guys in the other monastery, the word would go around and they'd say, to the barricades, he's coming. And when I would move from another, from a monastery, they used to say that the fallout lasted for about six months. I was uh, a source of uh, dissension, fights, unrest, all the time drinking. When I had been teaching for some time. And by the way, I had made my mind up when I came home from Rome that I was going to become the most brilliant professor in the entire Roman Catholic outfit. And that I was going to put that entire outfit right about everything. And it needed putting right. After I'd been teaching for some time, the superior of the monastery sent for me. And I went along to his office. And when I saw his face, I saw there was trouble brewing. To make a very long story short, he just said to me, your conduct since you came home from Rome has been intolerable. The very worst day's work I ever did was send you to Rome. All it did for you was it has made you an alcoholic. That was the first time in my life that that filthy, filthy word was used in my presence about me. It made you an alcoholic. And I want you to understand that out of this moment, your professorship is terminated. And I will see to it that you will not teach anywhere 
in the Catholic Church. I will see to that. You have been a scandal and a disgrace. I can recall the sense of utter outrage that I experienced. Total outrage. I went out from his office, and I met some of my brethren outside in the hallway. I remember very, very distinctly saying, You won't believe what that jackass has just told me. Just because I enjoy a drink, I'm an alcoholic. I really, really couldn't believe it. I found myself reduced in the ranks and committed to just doing the ordinary chores, which I considered you need no brains whatever for doing. Just the preaching job, parish missions, retreats, and no no use made of my utterly exceptional academic brilliance and competence. None. I became a resentful, disgruntled, arrogant, hate-filled human being. Anything remotely resembling prayer had been banished completely from my life. I want to tell you, you can't pray when you're drunk or have a hangover. At least I can't. Couldn't even think of it. And so I found myself called on to go places and to try to preach God's mind and God's heart to God's people when I myself was a billion, billion, billion miles from God. I knew myself to be a hypocrite and a phony. I knew that every word I was saying was a condemnation of myself. I would sit in the confessional and the people would come one by one and take what you and I know as a fifth step. And this would be in the evening time after the mission service would have, would have been finished. I'd be sitting there hearing confessions. And inside in the parish house, the bottle would be out. And precious time was being wasted with me sitting there. And I would become completely impatient and say, look, do you think we could get on with this and get the heck out of here? I would go into a schoolroom and try to be expected to talk to the little children with a heck of a hangover. And some little child would bungle or forget or something. And I'd blow my stack. And all the time, all the time, I was being turned into authority figures. This went on for 25 years. In the course of those years, I decided that uh, the people I tried to live with and work with just didn't appreciate competence and brilliance when they, when they saw it. And so I asked the major superior of the religious order to uh, petition, the one who had to be petitioned for a thing like this, the Pope, to annul my vows as a monk. And you never saw anyone jump to a request in all your life as he jumped to that one. And I got my free my I got my freedom to cease to be a monk, but I had to remain a priest and by a variety of wire pulling and manipulation I got someone to prevail on the Bishop of San Diego, California to accept in his diocese as an ordinary priest of the diocese to work in parish this promising, brilliant figure from a monastery in England. That was in 1968. I was going to start life all over again, of course, but I brought my problem with me without ever, ever knowing that I had a problem. All that was wrong was perfectly obvious. People did not appreciate me. If they would give me the, the, the status that both God and grace and nature and everything else designed me to have, everything would be all right and I wouldn't be drinking. That was my frame of mind when I came out to San Diego. The very first pastor that I was appointed to was another Irishman. And he was a chronic alcoholic. His very first words to me were, Will you drink with me? How lucky can you be? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. 
But what I want to tell you is, when you have true drinking Irish alcoholics under the same roof, look out. Keep out of the line of fire. It's really serious. The police had to be called one night. I can still see the door with the red lights blinking outside the window. The neighbors had to call the police. I was moved from there. And that was the story of my life again for seven years. Constantly moved. I want you to know that there are no words that I could ever find to tell you how I felt during all those years. I knew myself to be uh, a phony. I felt myself to be the ultimate failure in everything I had set out in life to achieve. A total failure. But I regarded my bottle as my only consolation until something would happen. In the course of those years in San Diego, a family befriended me and they invited me to spend a vacation with them down in Mexico, where they had a big trailer. It was a big family. They had this trailer. So I went. By the way, I chose my friends very carefully. The wife of this family herself belonged to a family which owned, once again, a winery. And so uh, any time I ever visited this family, I was always supplied with cases and cases of the good stuff to put in the trunk of my car to bring home. So I always had a liberal supply. I went with them on vacation, and towards the end of the vacation, the wife developed tennis elbow, and her husband had to bring her back up to San Diego to get attention. That left Uncle Bill in charge. And the kids... There were quite a number of them, I forget how many, but they ranged in age from a little nipper of about five right up to the big, big brother, Matt, who was at college, and a whole crowd in between. Well, on this particular night, good Catholics, you understand. On this particular night, I remember very clearly, I had been imbibing all day as usual, all day, and it came towards midnight, and there was a kind of a jazz band or something on the radio in the trailer. And uh, it was time for, I thought, time for bed. So I remember upending my bottle into the bumper to go to bed with the most important one of the day, the one to pass out with. And I threw the bottle into a trash can. And I said, now, guys and gals, let's all go to our beds and turn that thing off and let's have a bit of peace and quiet around here. So... <clears throat> I walked over to the door going into my... It was really three trailers broken into one, quite large. And I went over to the door leading into my little bunk. And I, I made to go over there with my bumper in my hand. And Matt, the eldest, stood in the doorway with his thumbs in the tops, top of his pants, looking very hostile at me. He said, where do you think you're going? I said, I'm going to bed. Where else? And he said, no, you're not. Not with that. And he pointed at the bumper of whiskey in my hand. I said, who the heck said I'm not? He said, I did. And I have something else to say that you need to have said to you. You shouldn't drink at all. It's not for you. Because all you are is an ignorant, savage, Irish alcoholic. That was the second time in 25 years that that word had been used to my face about me. And it was being used now by a youngster talking to a doctor of... Did I tell you I'm a very brilliant man? Did I? This young punk talking to me in those terms. And he said, I want to tell you something else that you need to be told. You come on a regular basis around my family, freeloading, getting your free liquor, and getting sloshed, 
and you think because you wear a collar back to front the way you do, that you have some sort of God-given right to this. Well, I have news for you. You're not welcome around here at all. And the sooner you disappear and disappear for good, the better we'll all be pleased. Am I right? And he asked the whole crowd of them, and they all said yes. Afterwards, this whole thing had been rehearsed. And he said, what I'm saying goes for my father and mother as well, but they're too decent to tell it to you to your face. I went to try to go past him into my room, and he knocked the bumper of whiskey out of my hand and spilled it on the floor, the last whiskey in the house. And when that happened, I can only, I don't know how to tell you what happened inside me. Something did. Something exploded inside me. Just, it was kind of a silent, volcanic eruption. And sheer, sheer fury burst up inside me. I have never been so angry since I was born. It, it just swept me off my feet. And I saw that punk in a light in which I never want to see another human being, I hope. I wanted to get my hands around his neck and squeeze and watch his eyes bulge out and kill him. I really did. Pure, pure hate, fury, anger. The worst I've ever known. I did try to do it. And if the others had not been there that night and pulled me off and with screaming and hollering like I never heard, I would be at least in jail today. I half wrecked that trailer and I stormed out of there and I knew there was a bar still open up the beach and I went up there and I bought what I pray to God was my last bottle. And I lay out on the beach all night and passed out. When I woke the next morning, it was daylight, the sun was up and I, I looked out at the waves and I remember, I remember, I remembered every detail of the previous night. And I was, I talked to myself. I actually articulate, I talked to myself. I remember saying, you've come a long way, baby. A long way. And as I looked at the waves, I recalled the very first time I ever saw waves. It was when I looked over the side of the little ship that brought me across the Irish Sea. When I was a young boy, with very high ideals. I wanted to love God. I wanted to get close to God. I wanted somehow for God to get close to me and use me in some way. And I said to myself, my God, you've come a long way. And I sort of had a, had a, an experience of seeing all my drunks, the series of them stretching back through 25 years. I saw the places I had been. I know what our big book means when it talks about pitiable and incomprehensible demoralization. I saw myself in sleazy company in sleazy places and doing things that I hope to God, God never lets my poor mother know about. I know what the total, total corruption of a human being consists in. The utter, utter hypocrisy. The utter corruption. And I thought, oh my God, you wanted to kill a man last night. You actually wanted to kill him. You did, you know. And one of these days, you will kill somebody with the kind of life that you lead. With the kind of temper that you have. With the kind of thing that booze does to you when it has its way with you. You will kill someone someday. Or someone will kill you. I sort of saw a ghost. And I remember saying to myself, and don't kid yourself, you're not going to quit drinking. You have tried. And I had tried. And you're now a guy who can't go on living with it. And you can't live without it. I felt myself at the bottom of the a slimy, slimy pit, and there was no way I could get up. I'll never forget that moment. I want to remember it all in my life. 
And I just said, God, take me back. Please. I want you to. I'll never forget that moment. And that was the first genuine prayer I had said literally in years. I could see the trailer from where I was standing. And I watched till the kids had all come out. I was too proud or too embarrassed or whatever to go back and apologize. And I waited, they all left, and I went back to the trailer, and I put my things together. I had my own car, and I came back up to San Diego, and it was the end of the vacation anyway. And I was committed to go on a preaching commitment up in Los Angeles. And I felt the most intense, panicky desire to do what I guess it's bred into people of my religious tradition to want to do under those circumstances. I wanted to go to confession. I wanted that more than I wanted anything in the world. But I did not want to go to anyone who knew me. So I decided not to do it until I went up to Los Angeles. And I had the directory of the Catholic clergy of Los Angeles in my possession. And I just looked at addresses. Names meant nothing to me, just addresses. And I picked on an address that I thought I knew how to get to off the freeway without getting lost. And it worked out. I got to this address, and I rang the doorbell, and by this time, I was in my clerical garb. And this old priest answered the door, old, old guy with horn-rimmed glasses, thick lenses, and distorted eyes kind of thing. And I just said to him, Father, I said, I wonder would you do me the kindness to hear my confession? Oh, sure, Father, come right in. I followed him in, and he sat down in his armchair, in his lounge, and I just knelt down beside him. And here I was doing something that I hadn't done in a... I couldn't remember how long. I couldn't remember. It was so long. I was perspiring from every pore, and I was stinking to high heaven. And I told him, as much as I could remember, of what my life had been like. And he listened, and when I was through, he had been holding his chin in his hand, and he looked at me in a bored kind of a way. And his first word to me was, What in the heck brought you to me with all this garbage? And I thought that was the strangest thing I ever heard. I said, I came to get God's forgiveness for my sins. Oh, yo, yes, he said, I know, I know. But why did you pick on me? Oh, I said, uh, because you don't know me, I hope. Oh, no, he said, you needn't worry, I don't. And furthermore, I don't want to. But I know an awful lot about you that you don't know. I know exactly what's wrong with you, and you don't know. All that's wrong with you is, you're sick. You have a sickness, a disease. It's called alcoholism. And you're no more responsible for having this disease of alcoholism than you're responsible for the color of your eyes. All it means is that you're allergic to this drug, alcohol, it has gotten into your brain, it has affected your brain, and it has programmed you to think all kinds of utter, utter self-destructive nonsense, and to make you think that in thinking all this nonsense, you're thinking the ultimate sense. He said you're programmed to carry on in the precise ways that you've been telling me about, ways that are totally self-destructive, destructive of your own good esteem of yourself, as well as your, your own Physical health. Destructive of everything. The program to. There isn't a sin in all this from start to finish. As you know, he said, to commit a sin, you have to be a mature, responsible human being. <laughs> you needn't worry. <laughs> And he went on and on with all this stuff. 
And I was kneeling there, and I was saying to myself, my God, what have I walked into? Are there two lunatics in this room, or only one? And if one, which? You know, I always remember that moment when I hear in chapter 5, we stood at the turning, I knelt at the turning point. I, re I didn't know whether to stand up and close my fist and let him have it right in the teeth and say, look here, buddy, I have come in here in mortal sin. If I die this minute, I'll be buried in the depths of hell. And don't you give me this chloroform. Don't you give me this stuff. Palm me off with this. Or whether to kneel there and listen. No one had ever talked to me in these terms in my entire life before. And some, some subtle, subtle thing in me was saying to me, Now you listen, buddy. And what really clinched it for me was, I had told him how it came about that I came to him particularly, about looking up the list. He said, you told me that you sort of uh, put a pin in a list or something. He said, you didn't come here to me by any accident, by any fluke. You were brought here to me. There is nothing more certain, and I will tell you how I know that. You see, I am an alcoholic. I have been an alcoholic more years than you have, drinking alcoholic. But I also belong to an outfit called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am the only priest for miles and miles around here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you think you came along here by some sort of fluke, you're even stupider than you look. <laughs> I guess you all know that when Roman Catholics go to confession, they get what's called a penance. You know, prayers to say and all this good stuff. Now he said, for your penance, for this stuff, he said, you're not getting three Hail Marys, three Rosaries, any of that sort of thing. For your penance, you get your ass to an AA meeting. <laughs> and I did that very night. He brought me. And moreover, he phoned my bishop and gave him an earful about this sick priest he had in his diocese. And I was packed off to a place called Guest House near Detroit. This priest put me on the plane, and I was the first priest from our diocese to go to Guest House, but not the last. <laughs> As Dr. John over there will tell you. And so I found my way into your company. And I only wish I could tell you what life has been like for me since. It's been amazing. Absolutely amazing. Unbelievable. When I started going to meetings after I came home from Guest House, I got me a sponsor, as they told me to. And the sponsor that I picked on was a very, very rough diamond. He's gone to God now. His name was Richard. He had ginger hair and a ginger beard. And he had, I had heard his story, and he was a man of violence. He had spent X numbers of years in the penitentiary. He had taken human life more than once. He was a man of violence. But by the time I met him in AA, he exuded serenity. A wonderful character. He hadn't an atom of religion, not an atom. But boy, did he have the spirit of this program. And when I asked him to be my sponsor, he looked at me and said, you're out of your mind. I said, yes, that's why I want you to be my sponsor. <laughs> and he didn't stand any, any bullshit, I'm telling you. No way. He said, if I'm to be your sponsor, he said, you'd better be prepared to do lots of things you don't want to do. Personally, he said, I don't believe you're going to make it. Yeah, you're not going to make it. First of all, why do you want me? For one simple reason, I said, you are a fighting man, you are an angry man, and that's been the story of my life, and I want to get from point A to point B, from where you have been to where you are at now. 
please bring me that journey. Please. Well, he said, to be on my terms. And he started in to tell me what to do. The very first thing you have to do, he says, is get rid of all your old ideas. And by that I mean every single idea was ever planted in your brain up there that you have tried to live by. Get rid of it. And I don't give a damn where it came from. If it came from your church, if it came from your monastery, if it came from the Bible, if it came from your Roman university, get rid of it. Because you're an alcoholic and you're a priest, and you better make your mind up about which of these things you are. Are you a priest who happens to be an alcoholic, or are you an alcoholic who happens to be a priest? This disease, being the kind of disease it is, namely a disease that permeates through every fiber of your being, that constitutes you what you are means that you are an alcoholic who happens to be any other damn thing that you are. And that determines where you belong and what's good for you and what isn't. You're allergic to the drug alcohol. That doesn't mean alcohol. There's nothing wrong with alcohol. It just means not for you. Something wrong with you, not with it. And if you also happen to be a Roman Catholic, he said that means you're allergic to Roman Catholicism. Which doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with it necessarily. It's just something wrong with you. You can't process that stuff normally. It drives you crazy. <laughs> if you're an alcoholic. One minute you're reaching for the stars and you want to be a canonized saint because you take that stuff seriously. The next minute you couldn't care less and you're kicking over the traces and you're totally irresponsible. He'd been reading my mail, obviously. <laughs> Get rid of all your old ideas. The result is going to be nil until you do. And you start absorbing our ideas. Starting with, God loves you, as you are. It's not that he used to before you started messing up. It's not that he's going to whenever you get your act cleaned up. He loves you as you are. Because you are sick, 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 sick. Not bad, bad, bad. And read the big book. You come to meetings. Phone me twice a day. Tell me what's going on in your life, what's going on around you, what's going on inside you, and I will tell you what to think about it. <laughs> After some time, <clears throat> he said, well, have you read the big book? I said, yeah, up to the stories. He said, did you read the chapter to the agnostic? Ah, Richard, I said, you know the job I made. Did you read the chap? No, I said. Well, read the... Read the thing, he said. <laughs> and I did. And he said, I want to warn you. Above all, you have to be warned. Because you're so damn smart in your own estimation. When you open that chapter, you're going to already say to yourself, what's in that chapter? And so you won't see what's in it at all. You're going to say to yourself, oh yeah, now they're going to prove to me that there's a God. And that's not what that chapter is all about at all. But as long as you think that's what it's all about, you won't see what's there. And he told me how to read the chapter of the agnostic. That chapter is composed not to prove to you that there's a God. That's what you do in church, all you people try to do. That's not what we do in AE. That chapter is written to do something entirely different. It's written to ask you to make a simple little adjustment, mental adjustment, which will make it possible for God to prove to you that there is a God, and that's something totally different. And they go about it awfully simply. They ask you to take a look at the world you're living in. It's very wonderful. It's very mysterious. Very wonderful. So wonder! Wonder could it all have been put together by an intelligent God. Or, it's mysterious, there's an awful lot of wrong things around. Terrible, terrible wrong things. So wonder, that's all. Wonder. Say to yourself, maybe there is. Which means, maybe there isn't. Which means, maybe there is. And a point will come when you'll wonder how the hell to get off that How to make the transition from saying maybe there is to saying I know there is. I know there is shadow of doubt there is. How do you make that transition? We finally saw 
that perhaps faith in some kind of God might not be as irrational as we had hitherto supposed. But how to make the transition from maybe there is to I know there is. We had to search fearlessly. And Richard said to me, does that remind you of any step? Oh yeah, the fourth step. Brilliant, you're getting well, he said. We had to search fearlessly. Where? We found a great reality deep down within ourselves. In the last analysis, it is only there he can be found. Not out looking at the universe, but the atom, the gyrations of the stars. No. In the last analysis, it is only down within your own self that he can be found. But you have to search fearlessly. You have to take that fourth step first. And when found, you'll find he's as much a reality as you yourself are. I'm pretty sure that I'm a reality, that I didn't dream myself up. Sometimes I have doubts about you. And here's this book telling me that I can be as sure that God is a reality as I am sure that I am a reality myself. That's pretty sure. And how? I have to take my fourth step. And when I do, among other things, I get in touch with the areas of my own powerlessness where I experience powerlessness. My powerlessness to stop wanting to drink. My powerlessness to accept my lot in life and to enjoy it and not just endure it. My powerlessness. My powerlessness over my resentments, my avarice, my ambition, my desire for status, for recognition. My powerlessness over my sex appetite. My powerlessness in a myriad areas. And having acknowledged these areas of my own powerlessness, now what do I do? I put them all out there, and I say simply, are you there? I want you to be. I don't want my life to be a closed-in little universe with no God. I want you to be there. I want you to be. Please, let me hear you, see you, feel you. And then you start living a day at a time trying to figure what his will is for this day, if he's there, what it would be, and asking for what it takes to fulfill it. And all I know is that a fantastic thing will happen. You will find yourself, says Richard, being empowered to do what you know you are powerless to do. Being empowered to be accepting, to be tolerant, to be forgiving, to be unselfish. And when I found myself being empowered to do what I'm powerless to do, I know there's a power greater than me around. What other way is there for knowing? There is no other way than ever was, than ever will be. When I find myself being empowered not even to want what I cannot stop myself wanting, and I know I can't, I know there's a power greater than me around. And when I find myself enjoying being this totally other kind of person, with a totally new experience of enjoying, then I know that I'm loved. When I was a little child, I used to come in from the backyard, back at home, after being in fights, all dirty, clothes torn, messed up, and my mother would look at me and take me up in her arms and clean up my mess, make me feel lovely and innocent and rosy and nice again, silky, nice, and hug me. That's how I found out my mother loved me. I didn't sit down and work it out, rationally. No, I experienced a power greater than myself, cleaning up my mess and making me feel good. I can't begin to tell you what it's like for a guy who set out in life <laughs> to bring himself to love God and to enjoy intimacy with God, to make a total, total mess of it 
and stagger into AE and meet up with a fellow with a red beard and uncultured language and show me how to find God, how to let God find me. I lived 30 years in the monastery. I was educated by priests and brothers and nuns as a child. I went to a Roman university. They took a guy with a red beard who's gone to God himself now to introduce me to God, to have God reveal himself to me. And nothing that could happen to me in my life could even begin to compare with that discovery. I, 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 I relate, I relate to people in this program who have been happily married, who have drunk themselves out of a happy, blissful marriage and lost all they had ever loved and cared for. I relate to those more than any others. I lost everything when I lost God. And to have it all given back to me, with everything that I thought I had lost, I lived in a community. Would you look at the community I live in now? The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Real, real brothers and sisters of mine. Everything I thought I had lost, everything I had ever wanted, I have today. I don't know how to say thank you when something like that happens. It, it, it's what's to be the birthright of every man and woman, I believe, who in, becomes integrated into this fellowship and totally surrendered to this program. I just want to, once again, as I've done at other gatherings like this, I want to say to all of you, thanks be to God for giving me you, and thank you for giving me God. May he bless you all. Thank you.